So praise God. This morning, um, we're going to start a new series in the book of Ephesians. So over the next few weeks, we're going to go through the book of Ephesians chapter at a time. And this morning, I've entitled the message, In Him, as we go over Ephesians chapter 1. Because in this one, we learn from Paul all of the things that we receive in Him, in Jesus Christ. So Paul wrote this church to the churches in and around Ephesus. He wrote this from prison which is actually amazing to me because if you begin to read this letter, and I think if I was in prison, I would be writing a little bit more negatively. I'd be r- complaining a little bit. I'd be doing all these things. I don't think I'd be writing like Paul writes, but instead he's writing to encourage the church in Ephesus, in this case, who are obviously not in prison, and he's just blessing them and encouraging them and says, you know, don't be, don't be affected by what's going on in me, but just co-labor with me. And he writes them to encourage them. This is probably, probably from Rome in, in about 60 A.D. And in this chapter, this first chapter, we're going to start to learn that we have been chosen by God since before the foundation of the world. Now that's great news to hear. You know, we're not just last-minute choices, but we were actually chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. And then we're going to learn about the spiritual blessings and truths that all believers share in Christ. That we are adopted as sons, that we have received an inheritance, and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of all those promises in our lives as believers. So let's go ahead and uh, get started in, in Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 2. You want to go to the next slide, Ali? In Ephesians 1, Chapter 1, or verse 1 through 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as usual, Paul begins his letter with a greeting to the church. And in this case, he, he declares his credentials. He's like, basically, I have the right to be speaking these things to you. Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ But he says, I'm an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Which I find interesting. Because we begin to see that that our calling in the ministry is not something that we get to just pick. We don't pick and choose, but it's actually a calling of God. It's the will of God that we work in the ministry to do these things. And in Paul's case, he had uh, an experience with God on the Damascus Road that completely changed his life. He was doing something else. He was doing something completely else. He was killing Christians. He was persecuting. He was dragging them out of their home for believing in what he's about to be a minister of. Turned his life around because God called him. It was God's will for his life. You know, for Paul to say, you know, I'm, I'm an apostle, this wasn't some harebrained, get, get uh, rich quick scheme. You know, there's a lot of people that have put up these you know, motivational speakers or they'll do all these things and they're trying to teach you things and, and lead you because they're trying to make a quick buck. But Paul's, Paul's not doing that. Paul was actually called by God to do this. It wasn't for his power. It wasn't for him to gain power or influence or any of those things. But he was called. And matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This was a calling by God, and, and it affected his life negatively if he did not. He felt that, that, that burning desire, that sensation. I remember when I was first feeling the call to be a pastor, people told me this. They said, if you can do anything else, do it. Because it's not easy. It's tough. It's hard. There's a lot of things that you have to deal with that, that most people have no idea. They said, if you can do anything else, do it. But the thing is, when you're called by God, 
You can't do anything else. When you're called to do something for the, the kingdom of heaven, you can't do anything else. Like Paul said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. The guy who wrote the song, I Surrender All, the, sim, the hymn, I Surrender All, was Judson W. Van Deventer. And he told this story about the call of God on his life. He said, for many years I had been studying art. My whole life was wrapped up in pursuit, and the farthest thing from my mind was active Christian service. My dream was to become an outstanding and famous artist. The Spirit of God was strongly urging me to give up teaching and enter the evangelistic field, but I would not yield. I still had the burning desire to be an artist. This battle raged for five years, and at last the time came when I could hold out no longer, and I surrendered my all, my time, my talents. It was then that a new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered that deep down in my soul was hidden a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touched and touching a tender chord, he caused me to sing songs I had never sung before. I wrote all, I Surrender All in memory of the time when after the long struggle I had surrendered and dedicated my life to active Christian service for the Lord. And if you guys know the words, it's all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. You know, when you have a calling of God on your life, It'll eat you up inside until you finally surrender. I know my wife can tell you a similar story with her, but for me, I fought God for years about this pastor thing. And it wasn't until I finally said, you know what, God? All right, I'll do it. I just had this incredible peace. Finally, I had surrendered to God. But it's not to say that when you, when you do this at the compelling of God, it's not that you don't want to be doing these things. As a matter of fact, we see in Paul as he writes, he always has a heart for the people that he's writing to. He may be, under the, he may be compelled by God to do this, but he still is, is loving doing it. He's enjoying doing it. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you remember when, when Jonah was compelled to go preach, he didn't have the same attitude. He did not want to go. He tried to run away. And then he was mad that God saved the whole city. But that's not the attitude Paul has. He's always looking out for the people. If you continue reading on in that 1 Corinthians 9, 18, in verse 18 it says, then what is my reward? If I'm compelled to preach the gospel, what is my reward? And he says, that is in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. Just preaching the gospel is his reward. And then the last thing I want to point out about this scripture which is so outside of, of what a lot of the, the, the religious world teaches today, is that he, he says <clears throat> to the saints who are in Ephesus. In this, in this small letter, the, the letter of, written to the Ephesians, he says nine times he refers to them as saints. Now, many of us have heard that to be a saint, you have to be canonized by the Catholic Church to be a saint. You Basically, the, the rules are, I think, that you have to live a pretty much perfect and spotless life. You have to have, have uh, performed at least two miracles in your lifetime. After you die, they inspect your life and they say, did you live a, a spotless life? Did you perform at least two miracles? And I think I read somewhere at another time that you actually have to be responsible for a miracle even after you're dead. People have to pray to you and you have to perform a miracle after you're dead. If all these things are made, then then uh, you can be a saint. You can be canonized as a saint. But there's no scripture that supports that. Matter of fact, 
A saint is just another thing that the that, that, that Christians are referred to. Every person in this room is a saint. And Paul, nine times in this letter, refers to them, the saints who are in Ephesus. I want you to know that he wasn't preaching to dead people that had performed a few miracles. He was preaching to, to people that were living, just like you and me, that had flaws, that had, they were doing their best to serve God, just like you and me. And he called them saints. I want you to know that you are a saint this morning. Then he goes on to say in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love reading what Paul does and looking kind of outside of just what he's saying, instead of looking at just what he's saying, but I like looking at what he's doing. And the first thing Paul does is he, he tells them who he is, and then he, he's, he gives them a greeting. and says, grace and peace to you. He cares about the people that he's preaching to. And then the next thing he does the first thing he does before all this stuff is he says, blessed be the God and Father. He gives glory to God before he starts teaching. He is always giving glory to God. He understands that God is his strength. God is who sent him. Everything that he does comes from the power of God. He puts him at the forefront. And I wonder, myself, do I do the very same thing? I mean, I look at Paul and I look at his life and he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I wonder, is that what I'm doing all the time in my life? When I go to work, am I giving God glory before I do everything there? When I speak to my family, do I give God glory? In everything that I do, am I giving God glory? He then goes on to recognize the source of our blessing. He says that, <clears throat> that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. When somebody used the word every, how many spiritual blessings are not included? All the spiritual blessings are included in this. There's not a, a single blessing that is not included for us in Jesus Christ. If you're in Jesus Christ, then these blessings are yours. Victory, wholeness, whether that be spiritual wholeness, mental wholeness, or physical wholeness, freedom, wisdom, etc. All these things are blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. When you got saved, you got Jesus. And His resources are limitless. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and the glory in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that all these blessings that are supplied to us aren't in, uh, in our riches or aren't in the United States' riches? If you live in a poor country, you're going to be blessed less because the resources are less. But no, these are according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They're limitless. And like I said, every blessing in heaven is ours. And the best part about it is, is He doesn't say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places when we get to heaven. But it says that He has blessed us. That's a past tense. We have been blessed with these blessings. Right now, you are blessed with these blessings. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes back to receive all these blessings. You don't have to, to wait for, for this stuff to happen. They are yours right now. If you'll take hold of them by faith. The key is taking God at His word and taking hold of them by faith. And then in Ephesians 1, 4-6, 
Paul goes on to write, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Everybody wants to be wanted. You agree with me with that? I think... I think everybody in this entire world, they want to be wanted. They want to be loved. Matter of fact, there's people that are walking around on this earth with no hope because they feel like nobody cares about them. Nobody, nobody cares about their life. They don't care if they're secure. They don't care if they're happy. They just walk around thinking that there's, there's nobody that loves them or cares about them. So many people are jaded to this when they don't recognize the awesome reality that God loves them, that God chose them. Did you know that you were chosen before the foundation of the world? Before God said, let there be light, he was thinking about you. That's amazing to me. From the foundation of the world. And it's not like, well, rapture's coming soon, so I've got to get those last few seats filled. Uh, I guess you'll do. It's not like that. It's not like, Remember when you were in grade school and you guys were picking kids for the kickball team and all the good kids were picked first, right? And they pick them, they grab them, they put them on the team and then you get to the end and it's like, oh man, we got to put them somewhere. All right. You get picked last and you get picked Or what about, it's even worse. Basically like, okay, I'll take him. But if I take him, that means you've got to take him. It's not like that with God. It's not like we're getting close to the end and he's got to fill some seats and he's like, man, Slim pickings, but I guess you'll do. He picked you from the foundation of the world. He was, think, he was thinking about you by name before he even said, let there be light. He enthusiastically chose you since the beginning of time. And not only that, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us that word predestined, you know, we have this, uh, uh, this idea of predestination is this uh, uh, idea that if you're, if you're destined to do something, you have no choice. That's just the way it is. If you're destined to do this, there's no opportunity, there's no choice. It just is what it is. But the word here, and predestined, is not used like that word where, where God has said that, that you are going to be saved and that's all there is to it. There's nothing you can do. You'll be saved. But it's, it's, the word is used more in the sense of, of predetermined or predesigned. We were predesigned to be chosen by Him. To be, we were predesigned to be holy and blameless in Him. It doesn't mean that, that we don't have any choice in the matter. If you reject Jesus, then you're not going to be able to live in these promises. Even though God chose you from the beginning of the world, if, if you don't accept what He's given you, then you're out of luck. But it is, is His will that all of us be accepted into the kingdom of heaven because we were designed that way. And 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 through 4 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, it's not just a subset of people that were predestined. You know, that they were picked by God and these people were getting saved and the other people, they don't have a choice no matter what. But we were all chosen by God. We were all pre-designed by God to be holy and blameless. And matter of fact, He is even waiting patiently for those of us who haven't responded to respond. In 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. 
but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is waiting patiently for people to come. You know, I think sometimes we have that brief idea that, man, I just wish God would come back tomorrow. And I remember one time that I was, I was at a, uh, a conference, one of the Praise Chapel conference, and it was their youth conference, and they gave an altar call, and it was amazing. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of kids came up, and they, they dedicated their life to Jesus. And then afterwards, we were all talking about it, and I heard somebody say, man, I wish the, I wish the rapture would happen just right now so that way all these kids would go to heaven. And I remember thinking to myself, no, we don't want to have, what about all the people that haven't had the opportunity? If, if Jesus were to come back right now, there are so many people in this city that would go to hell because they haven't had the opportunity. There are so many people in this, in this country that's falling apart. There's so many people in, in other places that haven't even been reached by the gospel at all. They've never even heard of Jesus. At least many people in, in this city, they've at least heard of Jesus. They've just made the choice not to accept him. But there's people out there that haven't even had the opportunity. And they would miss out. You see, that's why Jesus isn't coming back like we expect him to. It's because he's patient towards us. And he's not being slow like we would consider slow, but he's waiting for people to have the opportunity because he desires that none should perish. And it says that this is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You know, all of these blessings that are bestowed towards us, all of this idea that we are pre-designed to be holy and set apart and blameless, it's not so that we can brag on how good we are. It's not so that, that we can, we, oh, God really loves me. He picked me. But it's so that He gets the glory. His work inside of us is to glorify Him, not to glorify us. He gets the praise because it's His doing. It's never our doing. It's His doing in us that makes us free, that makes us whole, that makes us blameless, that sets us apart. And He gives it to us freely. Matter of fact, from the foundation of the world, He's been planning on giving this gift to you. From before you were born, he had this gift wrapped up and ready to give to you, and he's been so excited that you were going to receive it one day. And matter of fact, like we said, he's so excited that people receive it, he's just waiting for people to have every opportunity before he returns. And then Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, it says, In him we have redemption. These next couple of verses are why I entitled the message, In Him, because we find out, what we have in Jesus Christ. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, not our riches, not this government's riches, not the country's riches, not, it's His riches, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. You know, we have redemption in His blood. These are, these are fundamentals of Christianity that we're going to look at this morning. We have redemption through His blood. A payment is required for sin. There's no two ways about it. A payment is required for sin. In Romans 6.23, as we all have heard before, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the wages of sin are death. There's a payment that demands to be paid. 
And the word redemption, what that means is, is the regaining of something lost through payment or the clearing of a debt. We've been redeemed because He paid the price for us. You know what? For the sin in our lives, even if you don't even count original sin, the sin that's been passed down through, through Adam, just the sin in your lives, the ones that you've done, the payment required was death. But thanks be to God that he made that point, payment for us. Our debt has been completely wiped out. It's been cleared. And then he says after that, he says that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I thank God that we still have forgiveness even after we've been saved. If you slip up, if you make a mistake, the Bible says that, that we have a, a, a remediator in Christ Jesus. If we mess up, that Jesus is going to go to the Father for us and we still have forgiveness for our sins. And the payment is, he's going to say, God, the, the payment was already made. I already made the payment. We can't charge him again. Even if you mess up afterwards. And it's according to the riches of his grace. It's inexhaustible. Many people, even Christians, believe deep down that they've done something so terrible that there's no way they can be forgiven for it. They look at some of the things that they've done in their life and they think that what I've done is so bad, there's no way God can forgive me. I mean, other people, I recognize that God can forgive them for what they've done, but they have no idea what I've done. But the riches of His grace are so indescribable, so unimaginable, the volume of what He has to pay with we can't even fathom in our heads. And we, we begin to create these ideas of the things that we've done in our lives and how bad they are and how could they ever be paid for? Who would have enough to pay for that? I want you to know that the riches of His grace are extravagant. They are beyond comprehension and there's enough to pay for whatever you've done, for whatever anybody's done. This entire world of people walking around thinking that they can never be forgiven. You see, if it were left to us to pay the bill, it's true. We would never have enough. The riches of Wayne just aren't enough to pay the bill. But the riches of God, the riches of His grace, is more than enough. And you can't exhaust His account no matter how bad you think you've done. No matter how expensive you imagine you're failing to be, you cannot exhaust the account of Jesus Christ, the amount of riches in His grace. And then not only that, not only does he have enough to cover the bill, but he says that he's lavished it upon us. To lavish is to, is to uh, bestow something in a generous or extravagant quantity. God has given more than enough to pay for anything that you've ever done. And then it says that, he, he lavished it upon us, and then in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. You see, this word mystery being used here, it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, on Scooby-Doo, the mystery. That it's not this eerie, weird, supernatural thing, but the, the, the word mystery here is, is, is something that was previously not understood. Matter of fact, in this case, it means a sacred secret that was once hidden, but is now revealed to God's people. 
You see, before Jesus came, the will of God was not fully known. Paul says that we saw in shadow, we saw in part. But now as Jesus come back, his, his will is fully revealed to us. What was a mystery, what was unknown, the sacred secret has now been revealed to us. And that was that his plan was always to save the world through Jesus. His, man, his plan was always to unite the world through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike. And to make them pure and holy and blameless and, and to destroy sin, to destroy death. That was always his plan. Not to condemn the world, but his plan is that none should perish. He says this plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, before Jesus, there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. Because the Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles, they were out of luck. The best they could do is come into the religion, but they couldn't even worship in the temple. Even if they were converted, if they were a proselyte, they couldn't even worship in the temple. They were completely separated. And then even on top of that, the Jews who were God's chosen people, and people in general, were separated from God. You couldn't just, when, before Jesus came, if you wanted to go talk to God, you couldn't. You couldn't spend time in His presence. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Matter of fact, it would be kind of scary to be a priest that was going into that Holy of Holies once a year. They tied a, a, a rope around his waist just in case he didn't do everything right and he died in there. They could pull him out and they didn't have to go in and get him. Because if they weren't perfect, they didn't do the, the things right, they weren't made clean and perfect and pure before they walked in there, then they would just die. We were separated from God before Jesus. But in him he united he united all things in him, Jews and Gentiles. Now we are all one people that God loves. We, we can all have the same rights to the Father. It's not just Jews who have salvation, but Gentiles as well, the rest of us. And then all things in heaven and things on earth, now we can go to God face to face. We can pray, to, we can speak to God face to face. If that doesn't blow you away, if you don't, if you don't just step back and think about that for a second, say that I can talk to God face to face. Face to face. I mean, for many of us, it would blow us away if we just had the opportunity to speak to the president face to face for a second. But we have the opportunity to speak to God who's the name above every other name. He's so high above us. It's like we read in the scripture for the, the offering this morning when David says, who am I and who are my people? I think, I mean, who am I, God, that you would even want to speak to me? And I get to spend time in his presence because of what Jesus accomplished. And then continue on in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. It says, in him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. There's that word again. We've been pre-designed to receive that inheritance. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So once again, in Him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. What is His, what is Jesus's, is ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we see this once again, this is written in the past tense. It doesn't say that when you die, 
you will receive an inheritance, but it says that we have obtained an inheritance. We already have it. It's like, you know, but he's like, Pastor Wayne, that doesn't make sense. An inheritance, as we understand it, when you die, you receive an inheritance. But it's like the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The one son wants his inheritance right away so he can go and take off. He doesn't want to stay with the family. So the father says, all right, take your half and go. And he takes it and he squanders it. And he comes back. And the father receives him with open arms. I thank God that's a picture of God as well. We can squander away everything that we have, but God will always receive us with open arms if we are willing to come back. But the the interesting thing about this story is the brother gets all upset. Because basically he's upset because his brother's getting a, a, a party and a barbecue. And this is what it says in Luke 15, 25 through 31. It says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called on one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. This was the son. And then it says, His father came out and entreated upon him. But he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. And that's what God's saying to us about our inheritance. All that is, all that is God's is ours. All those spiritual blessings are available to us now. We don't have to wait until one day that we die to receive these things, to receive our inheritance, because we can partake in it now. And then it says that all these things are according to the counsel of His will. This was always God's plan. You know, I think many times in our head we think that the law was God's first shot at it, and that didn't work out, so we tried something different. But the truth is that Jesus was always the plan. It was always planned for us to be, like we read last verse, holy and blameless in Him. Jesus was always the plan. The law came basically to show us that there's no way you can do it on your own, and you need Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't the the plan B, let's hope this works, but He was always the plan for us to be made pure and holy from day one, from before the foundation of the world. And then he says that so that we who are the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I want you to know that when you hope in Christ, you are bringing praise to God. It is to the praise of his glory. That honors him when you accept his son. You are honoring God. By putting our trust in Jesus and putting our hope in Jesus, we actually bring honor to God. And then in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know what's interesting is this first sentence, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the the plan of salvation in a single sentence. 
First, it says that you have to, when you heard the word of truth, you have to hear the gospel before you can get saved. In Romans 10, 14, it says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they never have heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The first part in the plan of salvation is you have to hear the gospel. You have to hear the good news. You know, if you've never heard the name Jesus, it's pretty much impossible for you to believe in Jesus. That's why we've been commanded to go tell all the world. And Mark 16, 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's the whole purpose, is so that everybody has an opportunity to receive it. Because if they don't hear it, how can they believe in something they've never heard about? Next, he goes on to say, And you believed in him. The next part is you have to believe. In John 3, 16 through 18, it says, for God so loved the world, we all know verse 16, right? So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, that whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have to believe in Jesus Christ, that he came for you, that he died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sin to believe. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We hear the word of truth. We hear the gospel. Step one. We believe. That's step two. And then it says we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You see, we receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It's like, think of it as like the signing of, of legal documents. It's a done deal. Like the signature on a contract. When we receive the Holy Spirit, that is the seal of saying that you have received the salvation. In John 20, 21 through 22, and Jesus, it says, And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment in time, they were saved. They, Jesus had ascended to heaven, and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus ascended and sent another because his work was complete. And thus receiving the Holy Spirit is evidence that his work is complete. And we know this because in John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, then I will send him to you. Jesus left, his work was finished, he paid the price, and he sent the Holy Spirit to us. And the Holy Spirit being sent to us is proof that Jesus went on to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, it is finished. And then he says that we will take full possession of our inheritance. Either when he returns or should he tarry, when we go to be with him, we're going to receive the full portion of our inheritance. Because the last thing to be put under subjection is death. We'll have eternal life in him. But until then, the Holy Spirit inside of us is our guarantee that that inheritance is available to us. Most of it available to us now and fully available to us when we go to be with Jesus.
In Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Once again, we begin to look at Paul's life and we begin to see that these are the things that Paul does. These are probably the things that I should be doing. And Paul, in this case, he reminds me kind of like a, he's a proud daddy. You know, he, he planted these churches. He ministered to them for a couple of years. He's their spiritual father. And he's like, man, I, I don't stop giving thanks because I have heard of your faith. And I have heard of your love. He's like a proud papa. Just, man, he's so proud of his, his children. They're, they're strong in the faith. And they're showing love to one another. And I talked about this briefly at the men's meeting yesterday, but this is actually the, the very thing that he instructed the Corinthian church to do. And the Corinthian church was having some problems, so he instructed him this. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. And that's the very thing these guys here are doing, and it's exciting Paul to hear that. He's thankful for their growth. He's thankful that they're saved and they're living a holy life. And he's constantly thanking God for the work that he, and when I say he, I mean the work that God did, not the work that Paul did, but the work that God did in them. And I think that we need to be doing the same thing for the members of our church. We need to be thanking God without ceasing for the people that are in this room that God has touched their lives, that He has made them clean, that they are victorious, that they are standing firm in the faith. Because they're a blessing. In Ephesians 1, verse 17, it says, <clears throat> He continues to pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Even though they're doing great, Paul still continues to pray for their continued growth. We never stop growing in the Lord. We will continue to grow. We will continue to mature. We will continue to have a greater revelation of who Jesus Christ is and who God is. And even Paul said that he hadn't obtained it yet. In Philippians 3.12, it says, Not that I have already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. You know, we're not, uh, we're not insulting somebody when we continue to pray for their growth. We're not saying that, oh, you're, you're just not, you're not mature enough. We just want to continue praying for their growth and knowledge of Him. We're not insulting them, but it's actually what we should be doing. The very thing that Paul did. Paul wanted them to grow. He wanted them to press on. He wanted them to hold on to what they have. but still to increase in wisdom and knowledge and revelation. Because that's how we grow as Christians, is that we have a greater revelation of who God is, and we have a greater revelation of what God has accomplished in us. And there is a difference between revelation and just general intellectual knowledge as well. Because intellectual knowledge is we read the Scriptures, or somebody tells us that you're, you're healed in Jesus, or you're victorious in Jesus Christ. Or He is your strength. And we're like, well, I know the words. But revelation is when we finally have, when God has revealed to us the truth of that statement. When we begin to live out and walk out in faith those very things that we've heard. The difference between revelation and intellectual knowledge is vast. And what we're looking for here 
is revelation in the knowledge of him. We need revelation to grow. It's much like the, the master musician who's teaching his students to play. And he's got this prime student. And this kid, he practices all the time. And he does everything right. He never misses a note. And after years of practice, he has his one big final recital. And he gets up there and he plays it technically perfect. And he gets down and he goes to his, his teacher, his master musician teacher, and he's shocked to find that his, his teacher is not happy with his performance. And he says, I don't understand. I didn't mess up at all. And the teacher goes, you know what? It's true. You played all the notes, but the problem is you didn't play the music. There's a difference between knowing something and having a revelation of it. And that's what Paul wanted for our lives. And that's what I want for all of, the, all of us in this room is to continue to grow, to know him more and more. And then in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, it says, he continues praying that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to to the working of his great might. You know, we need to have our eyes open. That's the whole thing about Revelation, is you need to have your, the eyes of your heart enlightened by God. And what that means is, is that we need to have our faith increased. In 2 Corinthians 5.7, it says, we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, we believe with our hearts. We walk by faith. So having the, the eyes of our hearts enlightened is to have our faith grow, to walk by that faith, to walk by that belief in our hearts. We need to have our faith expanded and our, our faith increased to grow in Him. Because that's what happens when you have a, a revelation of what God is, is your faith grows. And then he prays that they would have a full understanding of the hope into which they were called and the riches of their inheritance, the greatness of his power for us and in us. You see, the thing is, is that the greatness of his power, the riches of an inheritance, all of those things, I think if as Christians we just had a grasp of what that actually was, the, the incomprehensible value of what that was, we would never have a problem with faith ever. Because somehow we limit what God can do by what our ideas of what can be done. This morning in the prayer meeting, I was, I was making a point to pray that, that with this deal with our building that we're going through, that, that I'm going to put it in His hands and that there's not a problem too big for Him to handle. Because my first instinct is to go, the numbers just are not going to work. I mean, if I look at so far what we've seen, and I've I got to remind myself that Man, I'm not worried about the riches of this church or my riches or, the, or what's going to happen. I, it's his riches that are going to make the difference. God can make it work. And I think if, if as Christians, if we would just get a grasp of, of what he's working with, we would never have a problem with faith. And then once again, I want to point out about how Paul prays. Because he is a fantastic model for us to follow. If we want to learn how to pray effectively, we really need to just look at how the Bible records the, 
the great men and women up and praying. And we have a responsibility to pray for people. And we find in Paul these things. He doesn't just pray for people to get saved, and once they get saved, he just forgets about them. But he continues praying for them long after they're prayed. He prays for them after they become Christians. He prays for their spiritual welfare, which we need to be doing for everybody in this room. He prayed for them as a people, and he mentioned them to God. And then he made specific requests for them. He didn't go, oh, Lord, just please bless the Ephesians. He made specific requests of what he wanted God to do for them. And then you know what he did? He let them know that he was praying for them. Do you tell people that you've been praying for people? I don't know if I do enough. I was thinking about this. But I'm like, man, he, he tells them when he's praying for them. And I, I recognize when people tell me they're praying for, for me, that makes an impact. I like to hear that. Because you don't know. I think we should do that. Pray for people. Let's let them know that they're in our prayers. Let's encourage them in that way. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, it says, he continues on, let's go back one slide and we're going to read the end of it and come into this one. It says that according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised him from the dead, so that power that he worked in Christ, and raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, now we're talking about that power again, that if we could just grasp what he's working with. I mean, God's power is, is unimaginable and inexhaustible. But it's the greatness of that power that he shows towards us was shown when he raised Christ from the dead. That very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work inside of us. And he's given us the authority to use it. You see, Jesus took a seat at the right hand of the Father and he declared that it was finished. And he has taken his place of authority. It says that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus sits at the supreme authority right now. Everything is under subjection to him, under his feet. And it's his power that works in us. And he has given us his authority, that very same authority. And I want you to know that when the one that is above every name, the ultimate authority says it's finished, then we can be sure that we are good. We can be sure that we, there's nothing that we have to worry about. When he says it is finished and then he sealed it with the Holy Spirit, we can know that we are taken care of and that we have our inheritance coming to us. And we'll go ahead and finish on the, this last verse here, the last verse of the chapter, the last couple of verses. And it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Like I said, Jesus is the, the ultimate and supreme rule, and everything has been put under subjection to him. It's been placed under his feet. And he is the head of the church. We are his body. We are a part of Him, and He guides and directs us. And much like our human bodies 
assuming that they're functioning correctly, don't make decisions without our head telling it to do something. The same goes for the church. The church doesn't act without Jesus Christ directing and guiding, assuming it's functioning correctly, with the same disclaimer. He is the one guiding us. We are his hands and feet. He uses us to reach a dying and lost world, to tell them that you know what? You were chosen too. So as we close, let's go ahead and remember what we have in him as we've learned. In him we have redemption, forgiveness. And let's follow Paul's example as we pray for one another, as we think about one another. And let's resolve to be the hands and feet of Jesus, letting him guide and direct our every step and every move. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.